Throughout Christ's ministry, he called people to follow him, to deny self in pursuit of Christ above all else. But what is Christ's call to deny ourselves, take up our own cross, and follow him mean for us today? Is this call made to the neglect of all other earthly responsibilities? The gospel of Jesus has implications for every part of our lives, and we must learn what these are if we are to faithfully follow him. In Mark's gospel, we will learn of the kingdom of God and our part in it. We'll see Christ's identity as the suffering servant, his authority as the son of God, and what each of these mean for those who call Christ Lord. As we look at the life of Jesus in Mark's gospel, we'll see what it means to grow as his disciples and lay down our lives as we follow him. Well, good morning again. If we haven't met, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here. And as you just saw, we're doing a series through the Gospel of Mark. So I'd like to invite you to grab your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the blue ones nearby you, and those Bibles will be on page 493 today. Um, I was thinking that this, this week, what we've kind of been looking at over the past few weeks of where, where uh, Mark's Gospel has gone is, is what it means to li- live in light of being a disciple of Jesus. Now, uh, everyone has different stories. We're all coming from different places. We all have different experiences. We have different preferences. We have different desires. All these pieces compound some of what it means for us to be a disciple. And no two disciples are going to be or live or act exactly the same, which is part of the reason that we need each other. Because if if all of us were exactly like me, we would be up a creek. (laughs) We'd all have the exact same gifts, but we'd also all have the exact same weaknesses, which means none of us would be growing or being stretched, being challenged to uh, live outside of the comfort zone that we all live in. So as I was thinking through, through my life this past uh, week and thinking about what it means to live as a disciple, uh, if you didn't know, I've been attending church since nine months before I was born. But some of the best theology I learned, I learned by attending Sunday school from the ages of birth up through, well, I mean, I just taught a Sunday school class this morning, so I have yet to graduate. Well, fortunately, still going strong. Uh, Some of the truths that I was thinking of related to this week, though, uh, were summarized well by some of the songs that you learned growing up. Like, think of one of the ones that Calvin asks us to sing every night to him is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Uh, A.W. Tozer one time, a well-respected, well-known pastor and theologian in, in the 20th century, was asked what's the like, deepest, most profound theological truth he's ever studied. Do you know what his answer was? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You could stop and think and contemplate and meditate on some of those truths for all of eternity, and we will. Or think of another song that you learned probably growing up. Jesus loves who? The little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Now, what do some of those like nursery rhymes, elementary basic songs mean? And I think as we get older, we have a tendency to miss some of this. What they are signifying is children have a special place in Jesus' heart. Throughout Jesus' ministry, one of the things that continually pops up is his care and concern for the least of these. Or in today's text and last week's text, it was specifically oriented and geared towards children. So with that said, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together this morning. We're going to be in Mark 10 again. We'll begin in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, 
Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He asked them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. As you're seated, I invite you to once again, please pray with me. God, we thank you that, that nothing is impossible for you. We thank you that even the dead can be brought back to life because of your work in us through the abiding power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for salvation that is given to us and, and received just like children who contribute nothing to their birth, who, who contribute nothing to the family immediately, yet, yet you still reach out and save them. I pray that you would work in us today through the power of the gospel, through the power of your word being proclaimed, that we would be a changed people. God, please transform us and conform us into the image of your Son day by day through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I was thinking through what, what Jesus is talking about in this passage today, what I think Jesus is, is driving at for us is how to live God's way. And he specifically mentions three different ways for us to live that way. The first place that he talks about is living God's way in marriage. 
Now, remember, we're in a specific place in, in the world at this point, so I keep bringing up this map because each time Mark lists a new place, I just want us to have a perspective on where it is that Mark is talking about and where Jesus is moving in his ministry. So remember, the beginnings of Jesus' ministry centered primarily up here in Galilee with the primary home being in Capernaum, so the north side of the Sea of Galilee. The beginning of this text, it says he was there, he went to the region of Judea and then beyond the Jordan. So where most, most scholars believed he moved was coming down through Samaria and then over here, beyond, this is the Jordan River, into the area of, of Perea, which will matter in just a, a minute here. So just keep in mind where Jesus has gone as he's transitioned from Galilee down to Perea on his way to eventually uh, uh, land himself in Jerusalem where he will finally die on the cross. Again, spoiler alert to the end of the gospel if you haven't read it yet. Now, remember, the first verse, so he's left there, went to the region of Judea, crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, what did he do? He taught. Don't miss this. The primary reason that Jesus came, yes, to die on the cross, the primary way that he went about his ministry was to teach. What Jesus was teaching is he's giving his disciples, which ultimately comes down to us today, he gives us a new way to live, he gives us a new way to think, he gives us a brand new way to operate everything in our lives. So Jesus' ministry is focused and centered on this teaching component. Now, once again, we see the foil or the bad guys to Jesus' primary ministry in the midst of this story. That is the Pharisees. Pharisees come up once again. Now, the Pharisees, remember, were those people who, who were given the job of, of helping people understand and apply God's Word into their everyday lives. So, have you ever thought about the Bible in that way? The Bible gives us God's law and tells us how to apply God's law to your life. At the end of the day, that's, that's why we gather as the church to hear what God's law says and then how to apply it to our lives, to know, to understand, and live out the truths that God gives us through his word. So when we think about the Pharisees, we need to remember that, that what they were trying to do was a good thing. It's a good pursuit to try to bring God's law to bear in all of our lives today. The problem is they were using God's word to build themselves up and using it as a pursuit of their own power instead of using it to serve others. So this time, what are, the, what are the questions or question that the Pharisees are going to ask Jesus, and what is their motivation? So notice verse 2 says, Pharisees came up in order to test him, ask a question that is a topic that is debated even today. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. These have been hotly debated topics all the way from the first century down to today. Now, at the time, there were two primary schools of thought among the Pharisees. The first was Shammai. They were the conservative Pharisees who only allowed divorce due to adultery. The other side, the liberal ones, were the Hillel Pharisees, and they allowed divorce for almost any reason, up to and including burning a meal. No joke. If, if a wife burned a meal, the husband could offer her a certificate of divorce. Anyone <laughs> liable for divorce now? So this was a hotly debated topic among the Pharisees. You have one school on one side, you have one school on the other side, and the Pharisees come to Jesus trying to see which side does he align with. Now, this is again where the, the location of this confrontation matters. Remember, they're in Perea. Perea was under the oversight or the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. Anyone remember who Herod Antipas is and the long list of the weird Herod names that we looked at in, the, in their genealogy? He is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. Does anyone remember why John the Baptist was beheaded? Because he called out Herod and Herodias, his wife, for their adulterous marriage, the relationship where they were divorced and remarried. Do you think that maybe the Pharisees were asking Jesus this question in order to trap him and have Herod 
just as they, he dealt with John the Baptist, deal with their Jesus problem? Maybe. So notice what Jesus responds to with them. So they're asked, Jesus is asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? So where does Jesus appeal to authority at this point? Scripture, to the Bible. He's reading them back to what, what is written? What does it say? What is, what is the focus of, of what we should be submitting our lives to? Don't miss this, friends. We can appeal to all sorts of truths. We can use other ideas to get to truth, but understand that our highest and ultimate source of authority must be the Bible. Otherwise, we are cutting ourselves down and dismissing how Jesus explicitly commanded us to live. Now, notice, notice the, the, the subtle distinction in language here. Jesus asked, what did Moses command? And they responded with Moses allowed. Command versus allowed. There's a, a slight distinction between those two things, but it is significant in this conversation. So what, what these uh, Pharisees are actually referring to is a passage of Scripture. So Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. So it goes on to talk about what the implications for that are. But what Moses is writing is he's talking about the ways in which someone is allowed, specifically a husband is allowed to divorce his wife. Now, this is a good start for the Pharisees because previously they had not been going back to, to the Bible as their source of authority and, and conversation. They had been going appealing to their own authority or the oral tradition. But notice that Jesus starts to redirect this. Verse 5, he says, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, what did God do? Now, notice as well, Jesus doesn't begin trying to debate the implications or the interpretation or the understanding of, of the Deuteronomy 24 passage. He, he actually tries to give some more background, a bigger picture of what's going on in the book of Deuteronomy. He gives some more background to why Moses is writing what he does. And why is it that Moses, Moses allowed them to write this certificate of divorce? It's a theme that's come up throughout this book multiple times. The hardness of their hearts. Now, it's come up a few times in this gospel. Remember, the disciples were hard-hearted. The crowd that was watching them were hard-hearted. And, and uh, some of us, uh, some of this even goes back to the Old Testament, where one of the primary sins that the, the, the nation of Israel has that God calls them out for is their hardness of hearts. That is, uh, uh, completely dismissing and refusing to submit to what God commands and wants us to do. Resisting the way God has commanded us to live. Now, all of us, have areas in our lives where we are hard-hearted, where we're not living as God would want us to live. This, this is part of the reason that we need to be in community with other believers, as it connects us to believers. And, and then on top of that, not just like other believers here and now, but connect to other believers throughout history, because all of us have, have areas of blindness or, or weakness or insufficiency or hardness in our lives that, that, that we need others to point out in our lives. Like, th think of it like this. Does anyone remember the moment when you realized there was something slightly weird about your nuclear family? All, it happens to everyone at some point. Like, I remember hearing a story at some point as I was growing up uh, that, that, about a family um, that had a specific ham that they would make every Christmas. And it, it started with, with uh, the grandma, went down to the, the, the mom, and then the daughter. So the daughter's husband one year asked why she prepared the ham this specific way. And what was a little weird about the way she prepared the ham is she lopped off both ends of it. So like half the ham was just thrown into the garbage. And she's like, I, I don't know. That's what my mom did. 
So they said, okay, well, I'm going to call, well, let's call your mom and find out why you have to lop off the edges of the hand. Like, does it make it taste better? Is it juicier? What, why is it? Call mom, and mom says, oh, I don't know. That's what, that's what my mom taught me. So go on to grandma, ask grandma why it happened. And she said, I, I cut the ends of the ham off because the roaster that I had wasn't big enough to fit the whole ham in it. So for decades, this family had been throwing out perfectly good meat that could have contributed to what, what the family was eating on Christmas Day. So every, every family has these things that are just weird about what they do. Like, I remember going to school, public school, uh, in sixth grade and realizing that it was weird that my parents were still married. Like, I, I was in the minority at the public school because everyone else around me's parents were, were divorced. Or maybe for you, it was uh, after you get married and realize that your spouse's family ate a little different food than you did and, and having to learn and adjust to different levels of spice than you had when you were growing up. See, all of us uh, come to this realization at some point. The question is, what do you do when you realize it? Because it's, it's easy to just look at someone else and say, well, you're weird. That doesn't make any sense. It's, it's a lot different for us to go, oh, maybe, maybe my family's the weird one. And then beyond that, what do you do when, when you read through Scripture or you are confronted by something that Jesus explicitly taught and commanded and you're out of line with it? Are you going to change? Or do you try to twist and distort what Jesus says to better accommodate what you want? Now, we saw this last week, too. Jesus' explicit command to fight against your indwelling sin. Remember, he, he said to cut off your hand, cut off your foot, gouge out your eye. If those things are causing you to sin, get rid of them. Because it's much better to enter heaven maimed or, or handicapped than it is to continue playing with your indwelling sin within you. Now, again, notice where, where Jesus is talking about the hardness of heart that he gave this commandment. And then Jesus goes back even further to earlier than Deuteronomy here in verse 6. He says, from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. He actually talks about God's original design, pre-fall, for human relationships. Now, God's intention was for male and female to be united together in marriage, growing up to be together, becoming one flesh together, which means sharing everything, including sexual intimacy. Now, there are a whole host of directions we can take this and apply it to contemporary issues, but before your mind jumps there, let's finish the verses, and then we can talk about some of the contemporary application. So where the Pharisees jump to the last of the books of the law that Moses wrote, Deuteronomy, Jesus goes back even further to Genesis 1 and 2, life before sin entered the world. Now, this one flesh idea that therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This, this one flesh idea is, is significant. Uh, because it, it, uh, Jesus, in, in saying this, uh, goes even further than any of the Pharisees would have been willing to go. So if, if they are truly one flesh, it means that nothing you do can actually dissolve that. And then not only are they one flesh, but it says that God is the one who, who joined them together. So if God is the one who brings something together, how successful do you think humans would be at breaking that thing apart? If it's you in the one corner and God in the other corner, who's going to win 100 times out of 100? God. So Jesus goes on from here to actually, actually give a pretty strong statement that goes beyond even what the most conservative Pharisee was willing to go. Like, no one would have expected this answer in here. And some of what Jesus is doing here is, is he's, he's, like, throughout the gospel accounts, you'll hear him say, you have heard it said something, but I tell you, that's not enough. So think of, uh, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at anyone with lustful intention in your heart, you have committed adultery in your heart. 
So Jesus is taking what, what is given from, from the law in the Old Testament and takes it even further. He takes it down into our hearts. It's not just external obedience, following the rules, checking the boxes. He actually wants us to be holy, conformed to his image from the inside out. So the statement that Jesus makes, like divorce should not happen because these are one flesh. God has joined this together. Don't let anyone else separate this. The disciples are flabbergasted. They wouldn't have expected it. The Pharisees wouldn't have expected this response. So verse 10, in the house, so that privately away from the crowds, the disciples ask him again about this matter. And Jesus says explicitly, even more black and white than he did previously, divorce should not happen from either person. If it does, it is adultery. Now, one thing to note about this is Jesus actually elevates the status of women here. In the first century, women were not allowed, very rare instances, but primarily women were not allowed to issue a certificate of divorce. Jesus, by saying this, says both people are moral agents who can make some of these decisions on their own. So if either one of them pursues divorce, they they are pursuing adultery, which is completely wrong. Now, what do we do with this text? This is where we get to. What does it mean for us today? First thing we need to realize is admit and acknowledge that God designed marriage to be a permanent, lifelong bond that at some point will be completed. Now, not ended, but completed, because Jesus tells us there's no marriage and no giving of marriage in heaven. So at some point, your marriage is done, because you are now married to the Lamb in heaven, which is going to be far better than any of marriages that we have here on earth. At the same time, we recognize that sin has affected every relationship on earth, including marriage relationships. We also need to ensure that we bring all the relevant passages in the Bible to bear on this topic before making a statement about what should take place. For example, in Matthew 5.32, Jesus actually gives a caveat where he says, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, which means there are times and situations where divorce and remarriage is permittable, according to Jesus, which then leads to the question, what situations are divorce or divorce and remarriage acceptable? Because in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul actually lists desertion by an unbeliever as an acceptable option for a Christian to have a divorce. And, and I would actually argue that the language Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7 also includes spousal abuse. Because that, that is the same as, as deserting your marriage vows to your spouse. I will talk more explicitly about that in sermon scraps tomorrow. So just wait until I talk about that if you want to learn more or discuss that topic further. If you don't know, sermon scraps is I don't have time to do everything that I want to do on Sunday mornings. So I talk 10 to 15 to 20 minutes on Mondays occasionally about stuff that I left out of the sermon. So if you're interested in that, feel free to sign up to our website or check our YouTube channel. But I'll be talking more explicitly about what some of these divorce options are in that tomorrow. Now, with that said, divorce is not something to use as a threat in marriage. Divorce is not something to joke about. Divorce shouldn't even be the second, third, fourth, or hundredth option for a marriage. Although, there are legitimate times where all other options have been exhausted because we live in a broken world where where divorce will happen. So, if you are in the process of going through a divorce, if you have been divorced, run to Jesus in the midst of that. Run to the church in the midst of that. For a while in the church, divorce was was almost seen as the unforgivable sin, which, praise God, that is not true. Now, one other note that I just want to touch on briefly. Uh, It is common today to say that Jesus never talked about or addressed same-sex marriage or transgender ideas, which is true only in the most narrow sense of that idea. And I say that because uh, transgenderism and same-sex marriage weren't topics that were debated in the first century. So what Jesus is actually appealing to here is is marriage is meant to serve as a picture and and happened and came about even before the fall was taking place. So Jesus is appealing to God's original design, 
not what life looks like on this side of the fall. Now, part of, the, part of the difficulty with that is we as Christians today are actually supposed to be aiming for life in the new heavens and the new earth. We are supposed to be demonstrating and living out all these things that are true, but not completely true until Jesus finally comes back and fixes everything around us. In fact, one of the primary things that is meant to set Christians apart is their marriages. Tertullian, writing in the second century, said, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common among us, but our wives. So friends, if you are married, prioritize your marriage so that your marriage can serve as a picture of Jesus and the church like it is supposed to. If you're not married, be faithful in singleness. Pray for and encourage your married friends around you to continue committing to each other and living out the fruit of the Spirit that is keeping with repentance as Jesus has called and commanded us to do. Moving on, Jesus first of all talks about what it looks like to follow him in marriage. Second thing, it looks like to follow him and live according to him in trust. Now, this is picking up a theme from last week, where we saw Jesus pick up and bring a child right into the middle of them to try to to counteract some of their selfish ways, but apparently the disciples didn't take it to heart. Remember, this theme of hard-heartedness is continually coming up in this gospel, where the disciples, the crowds, those who are listening to Jesus don't hear it. So verse 13, they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. 14, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Jesus was angry. At his disciples. Now, what's interesting is Mark seems to actually communicate the emotions of Jesus more than any of the other Gospels. But notice what it is that makes Jesus angry. It is lack of concern for, as he says in Matthew 25, 45, the least of these. Now, this brings up the point in question for us. When, when can someone trust in Jesus as their Savior? There's been a debate, discussion about this conversation because Jesus says that the kingdom belongs to children. One of the things I pray for my kids is that they have a boring testimony, (laughs) that they can't imagine a day where they didn't know, love, trust, and follow Jesus. Some of you have shared with me, some of my kids have shared with you that they trust in Jesus. Yesterday, Calvin was sitting on the couch with me and he said, Dad, I'm a Christian. And I said, dude, I really hope that is true. (laughs) I pray for that. We will see if the fruit is born with that as time goes on. But what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? Well, what can children do on their own? Nothing. Similarly, unless we come to God with nothing, we won't receive his kingdom. Now, there's significance to what Jesus does here. So, verse 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took these children in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, there's significance to what Jesus is doing here. Blessing is, is throughout most of the Bible, seen by laying hands on and blessing someone. So you think of uh, in Genesis, where Abraham is blessing his sons. You see Jacob blessing his sons. You see Isaac blessing his sons by laying hands on them and blessing them. You think of, of the New Testament, where it talks about as, as Paul was sent out on missionary journeys, the church gathers around, lays hands on them, blesses him, and then sends him out to pursue his ministry. So what Jesus is doing is he's actually elevating the status of the children. He's saying, this is the example, this is the model that you should be emulating in your lives if you want to receive the kingdom of God in your life. Now, again, it doesn't say childish. He says childlike. It has to have a complete trust and confidence and hope in what he is doing. Now, this is why we, we, we practice uh, baby dedications or child dedications. This is a picture that God has given to us. We are the church, including the children, including the babies, including the middle schoolers who don't know they have BO yet, including the high schoolers. All of us are a part of the church together. There's a tendency for us to almost view the church as we grown-ups gathering together, 
and then we send the kids over to kids' ministry to go and run off the energy so that we can focus. But the church isn't comprised of just adults. It's comprised of children who we get to see dancing and parading around. This is part of the reason that we do Family Sundays here. It's an opportunity for us to remember we need to be like these children who are excited about gathering, gathering together, who are excited about seeing their friends, who are excited about singing the songs that they don't even know the words to. Because it's a picture for us of what we need to be like to receive God's kingdom. Now, the story actually goes on. So Jesus talks about blessing these children, and then we see a picture of what it looks like and how we need to be childlike to enter the kingdom. And it comes about through a rich, young ruler. Notice how he approaches Jesus. So they start to go out on their journey to to the next steps of this. A man runs up and kneels before Jesus. It's almost like he's he's so excited, has so much energy pent up that that, that he can't stop running in front of Jesus. He's desperate to get his question answered. And notice how he approaches Jesus. He says, good teacher. Now Jesus, in response to this good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life, as always, redirects the conversation. He says, why do you call me good? Now, this isn't a humble brag from Jesus. This is Jesus reminding the man who he is. He, he's, yes, he's a teacher, but he's so much more than a teacher. If he is good, then he is God. And if, if he's God, then it's worth giving up everything to follow after him. So why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then you know the commandments. But he brings special attention to the last six of the commandments. If you didn't know the commandments can be broken down, essentially the first four talking about our relationship to God and the last six talking about our horizontal relationships with each other. So Jesus is emphasizing those horizontal relationships with each other. So you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man responds, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So he is saying that he's been obedient to all of those commands since he would have been held responsible for them, which happens at your bar mitzvah at age 13. Notice that Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. We saw Jesus rebuking his disciples back here in in just a few verses previously. Jesus doesn't do either of those things to him. Instead, what it describes Jesus doing is looking and loving. Looking and loving. But... What Jesus does is he loves this man enough to not leave the man in his independent state. Because if you truly love someone, then you will want what's best for them. You won't want them to continue living on in the sin that's only going to lead them to death. And and what we see from this specific man is he had put his trust, his hope, and his confidence in material wealth. Notice it says, verse 22, he had great possessions. He was a very wealthy man. This is why Jesus points out this specific area of deficiency in his life. Now, this is not a command for all believers at all times. We see throughout the book of Acts that people in the early church willingly shared their possessions with each other, but it was willingly. And no one actually gave up all of their earthly possessions. Which means what what the Bible actually commands us to pursue is neither poverty theology nor prosperity theology. Those are aberrations of what God has commanded us to do. We don't just give things away for the sake of it because we actually are required by Scripture to take care of our families. Nor do we see that we are going to just get more and more material things, more and more financial freedom, more and more so-called blessings in our lives because they're going to disappear at some point. So this man going away sorrowful becomes another teaching opportunity for the disciples. And, And he tells them that unlike the children who had welcomed him before, those who are wealthy will struggle to put their whole trust and confidence in Jesus. So 23, how difficult 
it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Notice what the disciples say. They're amazed at his words. He goes on, verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished. They can hardly believe the way Jesus is describing what is taking place here. And the disciples are amazed for the same reason we would be, because there's a tendency to view material wealth as being blessed by God. Or, uh, for those who may not have it, you view money as the solution to all of your problems. However, as the notorious B.I.G. said, more money, more problems. See, it is difficult for someone who has wealth on this side of heaven to realize that as we sing in the old hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Because if you have wealth, you think that you can do it by yourself. Uh, I think of, of the, the old uh, uh, song from the, the, what, 50s or 60s, I did it my way, which is the way many of, of, of us as uh, Western Americans view and, and think about even our salvation. That's where we need reminders from someone like Jonathan Edwards who said you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Do you realize that? You contribute nothing. You need to come like a child. Now, how easy is this? It's not. Jesus says it is easier to thread a camel through a needle. How easy do you think that would be? Uh, Camels at this time were viewed as the biggest animal in the area. They rode them, they used them as uh, similar to like we would use horses today. The needle would have been the smallest hole available. Uh, C.S. Lewis actually wrote a poem about this that I think summarizes the absurdity of what Jesus is saying really well. He says, all things are possible, it's true, but picture how the camel feels squeezed out in one long bloody thread from tail to snout. It's saying that this is impossible. If you just come in your own strength, if you just come in your own power, you're not going to ever be able to be saved. And this blows the disciples' minds even more. Remember, it says they are exceedingly astonished, and they start to question, well, who's going to be saved then? If even those who we as the world around us think of as blessed can't be saved, who can? It's yet another reminder that all of us are needy people. All of us are dependent on God's grace. We need his mercy extended to us day by day, which is why it's a miracle that his mercies are new every single morning. If it were only up to us, no one could be saved. But thankfully, God is not limited like we are. So because God is at work in us, there's hope for us to be saved. Which leads us to the last thing, the last way that we live God's way, and that is command for us to live sacrificially. So Jesus bringing this up, that it is, it is very difficult for those who are wealthy on this side of heaven to be saved, it forces the disciples to start thinking, well, what about us? They'd left boats, they'd left jobs, they'd left families. Peter actually says at the beginning here, we've left everything and followed you. Can they be saved? Uh, Even some of the the people that were following Jesus, we see in in Luke's account that there were people that followed him that were contributing or or providing for Jesus and disciples out of their own means. So apparently there are some people who are wealthy who can follow Jesus, which gives us hope. Now Jesus responds that not only will they be saved, but they'll get back even before heaven a hundred times what they gave up. But not only will they get those things back, verse 30 says, they'll also get persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But how will this come about? It comes about by being brought into a new family. Jesus is actually pointing out that the way that a promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 would be fulfilled. In Genesis 15, God met with Abraham and told him to go count the stars in the sky. Anyone ever try to count the stars in the sky? It's a, again, it's, it's an absurdity. It is impossible. 
And God's point to Abraham was the people that follow after you are going to be more numerous than you could ever possibly count. The promise that God gave to Abraham in the Old Testament is actually fulfilled. That promise is fulfilled here in the church today. And it does by us being brought into a new family where we now have houses all over the world. I was told a story from someone in my Sunday school class last week. Uh, they were spending some time in, in Japan for a, a missions work that they were doing over there. They went over on student visas, were trying to convert to work visas, and, and during the time over there, in order to get the work visa, they had to go to a different country for a day and then fly back to get all, all the, the government regulations and red tape. They went to uh, South Korea just for a night, hoping that they could find someone to stay with. They had a phone number to contact, someone from crew or navigators or something like that. So they went, they went over, uh, called the person after their flight landed in South Korea. The person found out what the connection was, that they were believers, and they were able to find a place to stay in that night. That's a great picture of what the church is supposed to be for all of us in all of our lives. We have more houses than we can keep track of from fellow believers who are scattered all across the world. None of us are completely stuck in one place anymore. And on top of the blessings that we have here and now because of the huge family that God has brought us into, we also get the best gift ever. That is eternal life. This connects back to last week, though, because the question that we need to ask is, what are you willing to give up here and now in order to be blessed forever in heaven? When you start doing the math, it literally makes no sense to put your hope and confidence in, in, in the things that are right here and right now that you can't take with you. But there are some things that, that you can take with you to heaven. Friendships, love, Jesus, His Word, Rewards for faithful service, rewards for generous giving and living. Why would you give up rewards in eternity, which will never end, for 80 year, maybe 80, 90, if you live long, 100 years of pleasure right now? Like, let's, let's think of the scales of that. On this hand, you have 80 years of life. This hand, you have eternity. Which one would you rather have lasting gifts in? Now, the way Jesus lands this, this section, verse 31, many who are, who are first will be last, and the last will be first. What he's telling us is, is his kingdom is the upside-down kingdom compared to worldly desires. So we, who are Jesus' disciples today, are called to live differently than the world does. We're called to spend our money differently than the world does. We're supposed to be citizens differently than the world is. We're supposed to have different marriages than the world does. We're supposed to have different priorities in our lives than the world does, like gathering together on Sunday instead of sleeping in. We're supposed to live supernatural lives that are radically different than the world around us and the way they want us to live. We're actually supposed to be like Jesus to those we come into contact with. So as we said at the beginning, because Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells us so, we can trust in him. We can be obedient to him. And we can know that he is working in us to draw us to himself. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that because of your spirit indwelling us as believers, we now have hope to live this new life that you have called and, and not just called, but commanded us to live. I pray that we would be obedient and faithful to this new command to love each other just like you have loved us. I pray that we as your people would live radically different lives, not putting our trust or our confidence in the things of this world, but instead putting our hope and our trust and our confidence in you. As we think and, and compare what life on this side of heaven looks like and start thinking and contemplating what life with you forever is going to look like, may that be at the forefront of our minds. 
May we reg- regularly remember and remind each other what, what it takes to follow after you here, today, now, and forever. God, I thank you that, that not only did you command us to live a certain way, but you showed us that it's possible to live that way. You showed us that it's possible to die to our own preferences, to our own desires, to our own needs, and instead look to serve those who are around us. God, I pray that we would come and approach you as children, that we would trust in you completely, that even as we have questions and doubt, we would know that you are a good, kind, and gracious Father who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to those who fear you. So help us to fear you and to trust in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.